Let me just say what a delight it has been to be with many of you for this weekend and now to be able to worship with you on this Lord's Day morning. And uh, I feel like I have been made very much at home. Everyone has been so kind and welcoming and hospitable. And I'll come again just to hear introductions like that. Wow. (laughs) The sermon's half that good. Wow. Uh, Ryan has been a good friend for a number of years and was very helpful to me as I began my journey in doctoral work as he was finishing his, and we've been able to serve together on the Gospel Coalition Council and board and have intersected in other things over the years, and it's been a real joy to be with him and to be with you. Uh, I I do want to thank you that in order to make me really feel at home, you have what, like 350 days of sunshine a year, and you saved your three cloudy days (laughs) for when I was here, so thank you very much. I see the sun is just coming out now that I'm about ready to head back. But we have plenty of sunshine here in God's Word this morning. This sermon in this service is from Revelation chapter 3 to the church in Philadelphia. So follow along as I read, beginning at verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you, because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." I want to begin with a short reflection or meditation, as it were, on strength and weakness. And you'll see how this has everything to do with this church and actually with the next church to come in Laodicea. The two churches in Revelation that have no positive qualities mentioned are the two churches that on the face of it look to be most impressive, Sardis and Laodicea. While the two churches with no negative qualities mentioned about them are the two that appear to be most harassed and helpless. And that is Smyrna and this church, Philadelphia. The strongest churches, as they appear, have the most weaknesses. And the weakest churches, as they look to the world, seem to have the most strengths. When you think about strength and weakness in the Bible, 
It's obvious and then confusing. Obvious because we all know that God's strength is made perfect in our weakness and that weakness is what we want. And yet, it's not the case that weakness of every kind is what the Bible celebrates. All of us want strength. We wish we were thinner or more attractive or beefed up or more muscular. My wife says that I'm good looking for a pastor, so it's sort of a a low bar. We'd all like to be smarter and more athletic and more musical and more successful and have better kids and better grades and make a little more money and have a little more house and a little better car or maybe just a better church parking lot. We'd, We'd like more influence, more sway, more followers. Each of us desires, if we're honest, to be stronger than we are. But we know the Bible speaks more highly of weakness. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So it seems then that as Christians, we ought to prefer weakness. And that's true. But that also can be misleading. While God's power is made perfect in our weakness, it's not always true that then being ugly is better than being beautiful, or poor is better than rich, or unintelligent is better than intelligent, or shabby is better than solid, or feeble is better than powerful, or having few gifts is better than having many gifts. Because we know the Bible prefers weakness over strength, we're tempted to think that the first half of those pairs must be inherently more spiritual than the second. But It only takes a moment's reflection on the heroes and the heroines of the Bible to realize that's not always the case. Abraham was rich. David was a king. Moses was mighty in power. Solomon was wise. Esther was beautiful. Samson was strong. Paul seemed to be a pretty smart guy. So we don't want to say that if we were all just dumber, uglier, less successful, the church would reach its full glory. So the question I ask myself, and we ask ourselves as we look at this church this morning, why then does the Bible prefer weakness to strength, and in what way? The weakness applauded in the Bible is primarily a spiritual weakness. By that I mean a humility of mind, a brokenness of heart, a poverty of spirit. This is the intrinsically good kind of weakness, to be emptied of self, to be lowly, to be meek, to despise our own sinfulness. So weakness in this regard is better than strength because the temptation to forsake the Lord and rely on ourselves is so much greater when we have more obvious strengths. So for example, to be rich is not to be evil. There's all sorts of people in the Bible who are wealthy. It is possible to be rich and to be generous. It's not equivalent to being wicked to be rich, but the Bible does teach, and Jesus more than anyone else, that to have wealth, we see this in Laodicea, is to have a great danger. What is the danger of money? The danger of money is simply the danger of strength. The temptation for someone who is strong, whether you are financially strong, academically strong, musically, athletically, artistically strong, is to rely on yourself, not on God. So as much as we want strength, 
we are usually opened up for more spiritual good in the midst of weakness. So last thought as we get to Revelation. Strength itself is not the problem. Looking for strength in the wrong places is the problem. Jesus and the whole New Testament are constantly appealing to our desires for victory, for vindication, for rule, for authority. Have you, have you ever thought about that? The Bible is not like strands of Buddhism that say the way to reach some state of nirvana is simply to get rid of desires. Let's not be more spiritual than the Bible. The Bible does not say you have desires, shame on you. What Jesus is constantly doing is saying, you know what? You want to live forever? I'll tell you how you live forever. You live forever by dying to yourself. You want to have rule and authority? You want to be first? Everyone wants to be first. Jesus doesn't say, well, you shouldn't want to be first. He says, you want to be first? I'll tell you how to be first. You get to the back of the line and you be last. So the problem is not that we have desires for victory, for vindication, for success, for endurance. But rather the problem is we look for these things in the wrong places, go about them in the wrong way. Strength is good, but for the Christian, that strength that we rightly desire comes through the weakness of despairing of our own supposed strength and success. So Hebrews 11, for example, and what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword. That is a great litany of success. And then it says this, whose weakness was turned to strength, who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. So those heroes of the faith are not heroes because they were mealy-mouthed, passive, incompetent. No, they conquered kingdoms. They shut the mouths of lions. They routed armies. But it was God's work. He turned their weakness into strength just as he promises for us and for the church at Philadelphia, that though they are small, though they are little, though they are weak, yet God will give to them great power. We don't know much about this church. Apparently, the deeds are not the problem because we don't hear anything negative about this church. It seems that Philadelphia was witnessing, loving, keeping a close watch on their life and doctrine because these things were pointed out in the other churches where they failed, and yet there's no mention of them, so we presume that there was general faithfulness. All we know for sure about the church is that it had little strength, and yet it was holding fast to the word of God and the name of Jesus. They were a patient, faithful, little church. Now, we don't know how little, but the language here suggests that they certainly were not impressive. There's a contrast to Sardis, which just came before in chapter 3. The church there has a reputation of being alive. It's the church that people would drive by and say, that's a church. Look at all the things going on. It's big. It's massive. It's growing. They're alive. And Jesus says, you're dead. 
Here, Jesus says, you look to be very small, very insignificant, very powerless, but I'm telling you that you're strong. We must not judge by numbers or overt influence or even our own energy. I think of Philadelphia like a small storefront mission church in some rundown part of town. It's not the, the part when you have visitors, you say, let's go see this side of town. You don't drive by and people stop and want to take pictures of that church. It's a humble looking storefront or a tiny country church somewhere in rural America with a leaky roof and a limping budget that can barely afford to share a pastor with two other churches. That's Philadelphia, faithful, patient, devoted, without much to show for themselves, except they have opposition and they have weakness. That's what we know. We don't know a lot. And perhaps one of the reasons we don't hear a lot in these verses to describe the church is because if you notice, most of the letter to Philadelphia is taken over not with a description of the church, assuming that, well, they knew who they were, but rather the verses are given over to comfort and encouragement. Of all the churches, little Philadelphia gets the most sustained discourse of promise and of hope. The smaller you are, the weaker you feel the more it seems Jesus wants to come alongside and give you promise after promise and blessing after blessing. I count six strong promises for this weak church. Six promises. Number one, Jesus promises an open door that no one can shut. You see that in verse 8? An open door that no one can shut. Now, at first glance, we might assume that this open door means an opportunity for evangelism. Colossians 4.3, pray for us that God may open a door for our message that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ. So there, the open door is a reference to an opportunity to speak the gospel. And that may be what this is concerning, perhaps secondarily, but I think primarily this open door has to do with salvation itself. That is, the open door does not symbolize mission as much as it symbolizes entrance into the kingdom of God. You think of some of the parables that Jesus tells in Matthew 25, Luke 12, Luke 13, where God's return is described like those who are crying out, open the door, or let us get into your house, or come into your banquet, or enter into your kingdom. Will you let us in? It's a metaphor for salvation. The open door of verse 8 must clearly be connected with the open and the shutting of verse 7. You see that? The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. And then verse 8, the promise is you have an open door. So that open door in verse 8 surely must be connected to the language of the open and the shutting in verse 7. Jesus is described as the one who has the key of David. This is a reference to Isaiah chapter 22. In Isaiah 22, it is prophesied that a man named Shebna, He's an unfaithful steward of the palace, that he's going to be booted, he's going to be ousted. And in his place will come a man named Eliakim, who will be clothed with a robe, 
fashioned with a sash, given authority. It's not strictly speaking a messianic prophecy, but this Eliakim is sort of a, a type of the Christ to come. And the authority that Eliakim will have as a steward of David's house is like the authority that the Messiah will have. So Jesus in Revelation is described with the language of Isaiah 22, 22. If you have a Bible, just turn there, keep your finger in Revelation, but see this for yourself since it's one of the, it's not one of the better known prophecies in the Old Testament. Isaiah 22, 22. And I will place on his shoulder, this Eliakim, I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut and he shall shut and none shall open. Well, that's the very same language that we have in Revelation. Eliakim had the key to open the doors to David's house. Now, you notice it says put on his shoulder. You think, well, boy, this guy... Put your little, your little house key, tape it on your back, just put it in your pocket. Well, their keys weren't like that. This is what it would have been not what we think of as a, a key entering a keyhole, but a big wooden lever that would have been used to lift the bars off the gates. You know, think of the physics of it. How do you get this big bar that's a, the, across the gate of the palace? Not with the little key, but the key here is some sort of mechanism that lifts it off. So it's a big honking thing that he's got to carry on his back. In the same way, Jesus has authority to open and shut the door which provides entrance into eternal life. So there in Isaiah, it's entrance into the king's palace, into the king's presence. Similarly, the key here, the key of David, is a symbol for entrance into the heavenly palace, into the king's presence. That is the open door before Philadelphia, which no one can shut. In other words, they have entrance into fellowship with God and eternal life with his son. No matter how weak, how small, no one is strong enough to close the door of salvation that Jesus opens. Do you believe that? No one is strong enough to close the door of salvation that Jesus opens. That means you're not even strong enough to close that door. You think you have sin that God can't forgive? You think, well, pastor, you, you know, these pastors, you just have little, little kitty sins and you don't do really bad things and you don't have all these things in your past. Well, you don't know pastors very well then, do you? And you don't know your own heart and perhaps, most importantly, you don't know God's own heart because you cannot close the door that Jesus himself opens. You can hear Jesus saying to this church in Philadelphia, cheer up. You serve a strong Savior. Perhaps they were facing opposition. Perhaps the government will want to shut our churches someday. Perhaps mobs will gather outside our doors. Perhaps we will be evicted from property. And Jesus says to us, no matter what they do, no matter what doors they try to close, no matter what lawsuits come your way, they cannot close the door of salvation that I have opened. And though your enemies may want to close your doors, they cannot close it if I have opened it by my word. It's an open door, and no one can shut it. That's the first promise. Here's the second. Jesus promises that the false Jews will fall at their feet. 
You see this, verse 9, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. Jesus is certainly not anti-Semitic. He is a Jew. He's not anti-Semitic. He's anti-sin. And in this case, many of the Jews may have been instigating Roman oppression or persecution. And so they're referenced here and in some of the other letters as a synagogue of Satan because in so doing, they're doing the work of the devil. Jesus refers to them as Jews who are not really Jews. That's Romans 2 or that's Romans 9. Children of Abraham, maybe by physical descent, but not spiritually, truly children of Abraham. This reference here that they will fall at their feet is also from Isaiah, Isaiah 45, 14. This is what the Lord says, the products of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and The tall Sabaeans, they will come over to you and will be yours. They will trudge behind you, coming over to you in chains. They will bow down before you and plead with you, saying, Surely God is with you, and there is no other. There is no other God. That's the prophecy that was made to Israel. So think about this. This prophecy is made to Israel some 700 years earlier that the Egyptians, that the Ethiopians, that the the people that were their enemies, that though Israel may have been oppressed, that one day these enemies of God would come and bow before their feet. Not that they're worshiping the Israelites, but they're coming to worship the true God to say, you have the real God, you know him, he's with you. So that's the prophetic prediction for Israel. So consider what a striking reality it is that Jesus is now applying this prophetic promise to the church at Philadelphia. He is helping to redefine what it means to be a true Jew, or rather to maybe bring out what it meant all along. The ethnic Jews in Philadelphia, he says, they're so-called Jews, but they were doing the work of the devil, the true Jews, that is God's true people, by implication, are the followers of Jesus. They will be vindicated. Now, some people think when it says that the the Jews then will come and fall at your feet, that this is prediction of maybe a massive conversion of the Jewish people, that's possible. But I think in this text, it's more likely that Christian vindication is what this is about, That though this little church in Philadelphia was opposed and mocked and perhaps kicked out of their synagogues, that they will ultimately be welcomed into God's kingdom. And even those who now oppose them will on some great eschatological day come and say, tell us, tell us about this God, about the one that we thought we knew, but we now know in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then look at this. You see this at the end of verse 10. They will bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. That I have loved you. Does that give you courage? It should. One day all the people who say, well, the God I worship would never... You know, somebody once said that God made us in his image and... Ever since, mankind has been returning the favor by making God in our image. A God of love would never do this. 
God I worship could never be like that. And you hold fast to the word of God and to the truth of the gospel. And one day there is ultimate final vindication. You were right. See, we are not wrong when we face injustice to want to be vindicated. God never says, well, you shouldn't want justice. I don't care about justice. No, God, God cares about justice more than anyone on this planet. What he tells us, however, is often you have to wait a long time for the justice that you deserve. And so here he foresees a day when though they had been oppressed, when though they had been harangued and harassed as the people who are doing the work of the devil, one day say, no, God loves those people. You know, it wasn't too long ago that if you held to orthodox biblical Christianity, you were considered benighted. You know, you, 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 you were backwards and you believed in miracles and sort of tut-tut, sort of people to be pitied who aren't really enlightened, but maybe harmless people who are just a little slow and not very intellectual. But I don't have to tell you that that's changed, not only that you would be benighted, but much more so that you would be bigoted. So it's not simply that, oh, the Christians don't understand and they don't know how things really work in the modern world. We pity them, but now positively we're seen as wicked, as evil, as believing things that are a, th a threat, that are a terror to people. We're the haters. You don't have to look for it. It comes to you. And, and, and you and I need to decide before God in a place like this, in relative peace and calm and with people you probably know and here gathering to worship, if you can't decide in a place like this, that in that moment of trial, you will say like Luther, here I stand, I can do no other, it is neither right nor proper to go against my conscience as informed by the word of God. You need to make those decisions now. So when you get there, and when that moment comes, and when the Twitter attack falls upon you, and when you fear that your job may be in danger, that you're ready humbly, gently, meekly, but firmly to stand for Christ. Young people, you are not prepared to be a Christian in this world until you are prepared to be thought strange, backward, bigoted, and benighted. Now, that doesn't mean that we go out of our way to own all those things. I love being a Christian. I'm just a weirdo, okay? <laughs> Some of us do that too well. <laughs> you know, we're, people hate us and we wear it as a badge of honor. And you know what? No, you're just a big jerk. <laughs> so, no, no, no. We're not apologizing. We're not making excuses for our own sinfulness and clumsiness. But it is to say that you must be prepared. You must be prepared to be different, to be strange, to be countercultural, and live not for the applause of your followers on Twitter or your friends on Facebook or Instagram or whatever new thing they're going to come up with next, but rather that God would say to you in your heart and one day will say before all the world, I love that one. That one is my child. 
Of course we want justice. You watch a movie, you want the bad guy to get it, you want the good guy to triumph. We're wired that way. It's one of the strongest emotions we have. What's wrong is when we desire vigilante justice or when we expect that we will all get it right now. Romans 12 says, do not seek revenge. Why? Because we trust God and leave room for his wrath that he will vindicate us in time. The promise here is to keep the word of God, confess the name of Jesus, because in the end, the enemies of the Lord will bow down and confess God was on your side. You want to be on the right side of history? Be on God's side of history. Here's the third promise. Jesus promises to keep them from the hour of trial. You see that in verse 10. It's unclear if this hour of trial refers to some final intense tribulation or this is a momentary period of testing that will come upon them in the Roman world. I tend to think the latter or it wouldn't have made much sense to the church in Philadelphia to promise that they would endure something that, well, those physical people actually weren't enduring, some future trial, but rather in their lifetime. However you read it, the promise is the same. Jesus will protect us. Some take this to mean that we won't suffer as a church, or perhaps we'll, we'll be raptured before a final tribulation. But that's not the sense here when it says, I will keep you from the hour of trouble. Tereo ek, that's the Greek phrase, to keep from. It's used in the New Testament in John 17, 15. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. So that promise there in Jesus' high priestly prayer is not that we, you know, are just beam me up, Scotty, and we're all gone and we don't have to face physical suffering, but rather that he protects us from the evil one, that is from his final victory over us. In our suffering, Jesus promises to protect us from the devil and from sin. In other words, the promise is that by his grace, we will be overcomers. Fourth, Jesus promises to keep them to the end. Hold on to what you have, verse 11, so that no one will seize your crown. Sometimes people get into very elaborate theories about all the different crowns, and there's five or six or seven different crowns, and you receive this sort of crown as an additional reward. Well, I think the crowns, whether they be the crown of life or the, the crown of triumph, that they all refer to the same thing, the crown that is given to those who overcome and receive the final salvation. The crown is not in addition to salvation. And we're walking around heaven and you have five crowns and you have eight crowns and you have 12 crowns, but rather the crown is the salvation itself. All of the promises to the churches are really the same promise given in terms appropriate to their specific situation. So here, as this church is small and weak and struggling, the promise is, if you overcome, you will enjoy the eternal in-time fellowship and identification with Jesus. People are saying, now your identity is small, but your ultimate identity is to be with me. We'll come back to that in the last promise. So Jesus promises to keep them until the end. Fifth, Jesus promises to make them a pillar in the temple of God. Now remember, Jesus was depicted as the doorkeeper. He's the one who's given the key of David, that lever to lift open the bar and to say, come into my house and live with me forever. Now, we the church are described as the pillars 
in this temple. You see that in verse 12. That is, those who are rejected, those in Philadelphia who were called in their lifetimes God-forsaken, will have the privileged place near the Holy One, in the Holy of Holies, in the next life. You, you, have to, you have to love how these promises come and meet God's people just where they are. What are these Christians in Philadelphia? Well, they feel weak. They feel small. They feel little. They feel insignificant. Some of you feel that way. You feel like this is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not the life that I dreamed of 10 years ago or 40 years ago. This is not the sort of place I thought I would be in. I thought I'd be just going from strength to strength and victory to victory. And I look and I walk with this limp physically. More often it's metaphorically with the hurts, with the, with the damage, with the, the doubts, the fears, the struggles, and you feel weak. And then the promise comes to you, you who are small, you who are little, you who feel weak, you will be pillars, strong in the temple of my God, to be sturdy, to be living forever as these strong beams in the house where God himself dwells. Over and over, God is reminding us who we really are in Christ. You know, our whole culture is awash with identity, who we are, what, what am I, what, what, what is our real identity? Is that identity what I, what I feel like? Is that who I really am? Just I feel this way, so I am this way? Is our identity uh, just shaped by the color of our skin or by a socioeconomic background or by our ethnicity? Well, our, again, it's, it's a half-truth, which because it's not a whole truth, ends up being a lie masquerading as the truth. Because the Bible is absolutely clear, your identity is essential. You live out of your identity. Who you are in your deepest person and self is who you must be. But whereas our world says, you know how you find your identity? You just, you just dig down. You just look deep. How many um, you know, after-school specials? They don't have those things anymore. But how many um, Disney movies? How many great um, feel-good Television shows are essentially with that message, just look down deep into yourself and find who you really are. Just listen to that voice. Just follow the waves of the ocean. Moana, great songs, terrible grandmother. <laughs> Don't listen to your dad. Go out onto the ocean. Okay, okay. That's the, the essence of our culture's philosophy. Find your true identity. Well, you see the half-truth there. They're right. You, you must live out of your true identity, but you don't just dig around somewhere deep into your psyche. You look to the promises of God. He defines your identity. He defines who you are. So here are these Christians, small, struggling, weak. He says, yes, I know you are, but let me tell you who you will be. You'll be pillars. You'll be strong. You'll be sturdy. And then he promises them, sixth, a threefold name that is to seal their identity as God's people. Look at this, the end of verse 12. Uh, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. I will write on him the name of my God 
and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. So three times, that is to seal it with a seal of perfection. You may be called insignificant now, but I will give to you a name, the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, and my own new name. In fact, do you count how many times that word my is there five times in verse 12? I will make him a pillar and temple of my God. shall never go out of it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. People say you're nothing. People say you're insignificant. People think you're unimpressive. Well, I will tell you, you're mine, 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 mine. In fact, every promise to the church at Philadelphia is tailor-made for their situation. Think of it. Have you no opening into the synagogue or no opening into the culture? Jesus says, I will open for you a door that no one can shut. Do you have enemies that think you worship a false god? Well, I will make them know that I love you and I am your God. Have you endured trials of many kind? I will keep you from the evil one. Are you weary and barely hanging on? I will see that you don't lose your crown. Are you weak and wobbly? I will make you a pillar. Is your identity feel like nothing but rejection and exclusion? I will give you the name of my God. Press on, Philadelphia. Keep on, Desert Springs. Jesus hasn't failed us yet. Let me conclude with two pieces of advice. First, as a church, and I mean as the church universal, I also mean as this particular local church, let us as a church influence the world by being the church. Isn't that revolutionary? It's not a call to be reactionary, cloistered group of obscurantists. Rather, it's a call that we would do what God is calling us to do, and more importantly, that we would be what God is calling us to be, an alternative community with a distinctive love, distinctive beliefs, distinctive worship for a distinctive God through the distinct person of Jesus Christ. He who marries the spirit of the age, of this age, the saying goes, becomes a widow in the next. And the more you say, if we could just, we could just make this just like what people want, just where people already are, that works in the short run. And then you know what happens? People realize, you know, I can get this same message by listening to the Sunday morning talk shows. I can get this same message from just following my Twitter feed, so why am I going to get out of bed on Sunday morning and make my way to church for this? Church of Jesus Christ, our goal is not political influence, though I hope that many Christians are involved in politics. Our goal, given to us by Christ, is not to reclaim Hollywood as if it ever were ours, though we hope that there are Christians involved in movies and media. Our goal is not to market ourselves so that consumers interested in spirituality find a great product here. Our goal is to be the church of Jesus Christ, 
making disciples of all nations, believing, hoping, loving, serving, praying, witnessing, worshiping, to be the church. The church at Philadelphia was not powerful. They did not seem influential, but they kept the word of God. They did not deny the name of Jesus, and consequently, Jesus says, I love you. Let me read to you this paragraph from David Wells, my favorite authors and one of my professors from seminary. He says, the moments of the church's greatest influence, and in fact, its greatest moments have not been those when the church reached for worldly power or when it adapted to its culture, but when it sought to be authentic. The church has been the most influential in those moments when contrition reached down deeply into its soul, when it's known weakness and cried out to God from the depths, when it sought to live by its truth and on God's own terms, when the church sought to proclaim that truth in the world, when it was willing to pay the price of having that kind of truth, when it was willing to demand of itself to live by that truth, when it sought above all else God in his grace and glory. At such moments, it has soared and out of its own inherent weakness found extraordinary strength and power. When all of these things have been present, then the church has been the church. Let's influence our world by being the church. And here's a final piece of advice. Do not neglect the day of small things. Now, that could be a banner over the church of Philadelphia, and if you know your Bibles, you know that's from Zechariah 4.10. It's one of my favorite verses. Zerubbabel is in Jerusalem leading the people and rebuilding the temple. Remember that saying? Zerubbabel, get here on the double We're in big trouble The temple isn't rubbable. <laughs> a, a lot of history in that one sentence. So Zerubbabel comes... And the Lord promises to Zechariah, the hands that have laid this foundation will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. And it says in verse 10, who despises the day of small things. Men will rejoice when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. It's a great picture. They have this massive undertaking to rebuild the temple. It'd be a massive undertaking in our own day. And think about then you don't have computers and you don't have cranes and you, have, you don't have steam engines or uh, gasoline-powered engines. You have just human strength and levers and pulleys. And the promise comes, you will rejoice when you see Zerubbabel with the plumb line. Think of it as a kind of level or a square. It's sort of squaring off the last corner of the temple It's what we would say, you know, the the ceremonial cutting of the ribbon, and now it's open. You will rejoice when you see Zerubbabel square off the temple, and it's done. So the promise is, believe it. Do not despise the day of small things. Because to get to that moment of squaring off the temple took days and months and years and decades and lifetimes of small things. There's barely a foundation now, he says, but the temple will be completed and you will be ecstatic when you see Zerubbabel up there. You and I will never make a difference for God. We will never be good parents. We will never have lasting influence on the world until we learn to embrace the thousands and thousands of days of small things. Sometimes say to people, you want to change the world and you haven't even changed a diaper. 
start with small things, small, smelly things. <laughs> As the saying goes, most of us vastly overestimate what we can do for God in five years, and we grossly underestimate what we might be able to do for God in 50 years. I was certainly like that when I started in ministry, just we'll get this problem done in six months, and then I talked to my elders, I think six more months, and we'll be on top of that, and then it was six years, and then it was, well, there's heaven. <laughs> A long obedience in the same direction, steady as she goes, day after day, not impressive, may seem small, may seem inconsequential, but a lifetime of your faithfulness, showing up for church, sitting in your chair, reading your Bible in the morning, praying through your prayer list, coming to the congregational meetings, reading through the minutes, showing up on time, bringing the meals to the new mom, praying for unbelievers, sharing the gospel when you have opportunity. These days and years and lifetimes of small things add up to great faithfulness. Don't despise them. Whether you're a struggling student, a retiree, a wandering 20-something, learn the lesson of Philadelphia. Though you may have little strength, keep the word. Do not deny the name of Jesus. Be patient and do not despise the day of small things. For God has a habit of displaying his strength in the midst of our weakness. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we give thanks that you have not revealed these things to the wise and the learned, but to those who are before you as humble children. We do not want to be children in our understanding, but children in our understanding of our own limitations, our own dependence upon you. Give to these people here whatever strength they stand in need of. And if we are confident in our strength, give us the gift of seeing our own weakness that we might depend upon you. In Christ we pray, amen.